So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 13th chapter, verses 6 through 9. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. I mean, the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding. Let's ask him for illumination this morning. Father, as we study this parable and we take it apart, as we do, we try to transport ourselves back into Middle Eastern Palestine in the first century and try to see this through the eyes of those that Jesus was actually teaching it to. Lord, may it strike us in our hearts, whether we are believers or unbelievers, especially unbelievers. May it, may, may it really cut through all of the nonsense and get right down to the very core of who we are as human beings and the reason that we are here, the, the, the reason that we were made, the reason that we exist. Lord, may no one leave this morning without a firm understanding of that. And I pray that towards that end, you will guard my words, that I won't step out, I won't say something that's not according to the plan of your scripture. May I stay just, just true to it all the way through. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the problems that people often express about Christianity is the fact that the Christian God is so complex. Um, People would rather have an easy God, a simple God, a one-sided God, a flat God, one that they can easily explain and and to some degree control. I've talked many times about my Muslim next-door neighbor, and when he was alive, we had many, many conversations about the nature of God, and he just simply could not get it through his mind. I think he was being a wee bit pertinacious. I'm not going to let you forget that word. Um, he was being a little bit pertinacious in that he, he saw the, the wisdom of it, but he just would not admit that I was not a polytheist, that I didn't believe in three gods rather than the one that he believed in. And so uh, it's, it's people like to, to, to talk about uh, this kind of God. And, and so you see that kind of God with, the, with the, the, the Muslims and with Mormons, with Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, to a degree with the open theist, the Jesus-only crowd, the oneness Pentecostals. They, they all want to condense and make a simple one-sided God. Uh, and, and, and usually that God that they make falls into two categories. And it doesn't really matter whether it has been devised by a primitive tribe in the middle of the Amazon basin or whether it has been contrived by the, the, the greatest minds of the world in the halls of education with a whole bunch of letters after their names. They usually fall into one of two groups. Either it is a God of judgment, a God of wrath, a God of rules and regulations, a God that you must appease with sacrifices or living in a certain way. And if you don't live in that certain way, that God is going to punish you. 
But then on the far other side, the God that has no rules at all and really doesn't care and just winks at your sinfulness. And, you know, all dogs go to heaven. It really doesn't matter how you live your life. That God is a God of tolerance. And, and somewhere the God falls into those two categories. Well, tragically, that same idea is sort of snuck into the church. Now, it's not so much that churches are heretical in the sense that they look at God in a way that he's not, but it's a matter of emphasis. Many churches will emphasize the judgmental nature, the wrath of God at our sinfulness, and other churches almost completely throw that out. They don't even want to talk about sin. It's just all about grace and mercy. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that kind of God. The Bible teaches us a, a complex God. And, and it's beyond me to where people would want a simple, flat, easy to explain God. I mean, just the nature of God means that he should be more complex than me. Well, the Bible teaches about a God who is both kind and severe. It teaches a God who is a God of judgment, but also a God of mercy. Now, Paul articulates this in his letter to the Romans in several places. But one place very clearly, the 11th chapter of Romans, and this is what he says. He says, note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. Now, that word kindness is a word that is used throughout Scripture. It is a word that in the Greek version of the Old Testament is used quite a bit. It speaks of the loving kindness of God. It speaks of the goodness of God, of the steadfast love of God, a God who is merciful. Coming out of Psalm 25, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. But at the same time, the Bible teaches us that God is severe. Now, this is a much rarer word than that word for kindness. But it is a word that literally means to be cut off. And it speaks of a God who is holy and cannot look upon iniquity, cannot tolerate sin, must judge sin. And you can't water that God down. He is both kind and severe at the same time. And Jesus is going to tell us a parable this morning that articulates both of those aspects. And we need to, we need to get it straight because we can't have a simple God who is one or the other. Our God is both. Now, this is not really a new idea in Luke. Luke has been developing this through the teachings of Jesus all through this particular segment. Um, and, and let's just go back a, a few uh, verses, back to the 12th chapter, because there Jesus shocked us when he made the statements, I did not come to bring peace to the world, but division. I came to bring a division that would even strike at the core of the very central aspect of society, which is the family. And, and he says, I came to cast fire upon the earth. And what he means is I came to cast the fierce wrath of God upon the sins of the people of the earth. Now, that sounds like severity to me. That is very severe. But that's not the full story. And we studied that because he says, I have come to be baptized in that fire. And I can't wait until the fire is done. I can't wait till I can say it's finished. It's over. Because Jesus came to be the one that that fire would fall upon. And he would 
pay the atoning price for the sins of those he came to save. So in other words, you see in that one statement both the severity and the kindness of God. And then Jesus goes on and he made the statement to the people who were there, the crowd. He says, you are perfectly capable of looking at the signs that I have given you and knowing that I'm the Redeemer. You can look at the, at the weather and you can tell what it means. How come you cannot interpret the times that you are in? And then he told a very profound story. He says, two guys are walking to the judge. Because one guy owes the other guy money. And the suggestion was don't get to the judge. Because once you get to the judge, it's nothing but severity from that point on. Because you're guilty. And he will turn you over to the officer and throw you in jail and you'll never get out. So for goodness sakes, settle with your creditor. Settle with your accuser on the way. Because that's the time of kindness. Brothers and sisters, that's the time that we're in. We're in a time of God's kindness, and, and, and for those who never act and never do anything about it, when they get to the judge, there's nothing left but severity. And then we know last week we saw that profound twice Jesus said, unless you repent, you likewise will perish, all of you. And two stories about suffering that were put before him, or one was put before him, one he came up with himself. And both of them sort of begged the question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And Jesus just cut right through it. He said, I'm not going to get off topic here. We're talking about eternal things unless you repent. Now, repentance, brothers and sisters, is kindness. That's the kindness of God. Giving us a chance to repent of our sins and turn to him. He says, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. That's severity. So in other words, Luke has been developing this all the way through this part of his, uh, of his gospel. And this passage, this parable we're going to look at this morning is going to sort of be the culmination of that, right? One other thing I want to talk about as far as the context of this, and then we'll get into the text. We read it earlier, and I told you to pay attention when we read it earlier, that vineyard song of Isaiah. And that song is important for a variety of reasons. One, it establishes who the owner of the vineyard is. And everyone Jesus is talking to now knows that and is going to make the connection with it. Jesus used that song of Isaiah in a variety of different parables. The parable of the wicked tenants later in the 20th chapter of Luke is another one. And so therefore, the people would have known that, okay, we're talking about God who's the owner. He's going to be the landowner. Also, they recognize that the vineyard represented the people of God. In those days, it was the Jews. In our day, it's the church. It's the Christians. It's the people who profess Christ. But nonetheless, that's who they represent. But what we want to make sure we see, and I'll come to this later on, is that when you have a story like that and you're comparing it, you want to notice what the differences are. Because in that story, in that song that Isaiah is, is, is giving us, whether there was a time of kindness or not, when he sings the song, that time is over. It, it is a time of severity. There's nothing in that song except severity. So that's going to tend to highlight the kindness that Jesus is going to read in to this parable. So with that said, let's turn to the text and, and see what he's saying here in the parable. Uh, right there at the beginning of verse 6. And he told this parable 
Luke's sort of setting the, the scene for us. Now, most of you know this. A parable is a simple story from everyday life that establishes a principle, usually only a single principle. Sometimes, like this one, we're going to pull multiple principles out of it, but they're so close they could easily be just rolled into one. Now, what we don't want to do with a parable is, A, pull our doctrine from it, other than the principle that's being established, and we don't want to allegorize it. We don't want to turn it into a story where every part of the story has a meaning and say that that's the way the story was told. Now, the reason I mention that is this particular parable has been greatly allegorized over the years. In other words, they say that the landowner is God the Father, the vine dresser is God the Son, Jesus Christ, the fig tree is Israel, the three years that he's been waiting for fruit are the three years of Jesus' ministry, and when he cuts it down and throws it in the fire, well, that's 70 AD when the nation of Israel was destroyed by Rome. Well, all of that might actually be an application of that parable, but that's not what Jesus is doing. He's not telling us a prophecy here. What he's doing is telling us a parable. And why that is important is because you can take the principle or principles of a parable and then you can apply them in different ways. And especially with a parable like this, we're going to apply it to the nation of Israel. We're going to apply it to nations in general. We're going to apply it to the religious leaders of the, of the Jews. We're going to apply it to the church. And we're going to apply it to individuals. Because the principle allows you to do that. And that's why we're not going to see it as, a, um, as, as an allegory. So, here's the parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyards. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look for three years. Now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Okay, let's just leave it there for the time being. Let's go back and let's uh, work our way through this. First of all, notice that there's sort of an anomaly here. The first question that comes to my mind, I don't know if it comes to your mind, but what is a fig tree doing in the middle of a vineyard? I, I thought vineyards were for grapes, okay? So why are we talking about fig trees and a vineyard? Well, there's a practical reason and a symbolic reason for that. The practical reason, now figs were a staple of Israel uh, at that time and today. I mean, they're very popular, easy to dry out, a good source of energy to take with you. So they were a staple of the diet. And plus, the fig tree served another purpose that you might not think about. Um, If you've been to Israel, you know that there's not a lot of shade there. It's it's desert, it's semi-arid, and not a lot of big trees uh, to get under. Well, the fig tree is amazing shade because of the nature of the big flat leaves. They form a canopy, and sometimes they got up to 20 feet tall. So they were a very welcome place to get out of the sun in a pretty shadeless land. So there were purposes that the fig tree had other than just bearing fruit. But the reason that they would put a fig tree in, uh, in, in, in a vineyard, and it just makes sense because the vineyards are going to occupy the best lands. 
They're going to be the land with the better soil. They're going to be the land that are on the right side of the hills to catch the sun. They're, they're going to have walls around them to keep predators out. They're going to be watered and maintained and taken care of. So if you really wanted your fruit trees to bear, you would intersperse them in a vineyard. And that's the reason we have a fig tree in the midst of a vineyard. But a fig tree in a vineyard is also symbolic. And, and the, the, the prophets picked up on this. And you'll see this in, in some of the, of the Old Testament prophets. Where a fig tree in a vineyard represents peace and tranquility. Shalom, if you will. Now, we're talking about, whenever we're talking about to the, the redemption of God, we're talking about shalom. Because ultimately, that's reconciliation and peace with God. But so, fig trees and vineyards were places of shalom. Micah put it this way. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Zechariah puts it this way. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So, in other words, we have a symbol of shalom, a symbol of peace. But I think the main reason that we have a fig tree in the midst of a vineyard is that it is a symbol of isolation. It is a symbol that takes something and says, we're talking about a plant within a whole bunch of other plants. So when we talk about what does that fig tree represent, well, we're talking about something that is in the midst of something else. When we talk about the nation of Israel, it's a nation within the nations of the world. When we talk about the religious leaders of Israel, we're talking about the people who are leading the religious aspect within the rest of the people of uh, of Israel. When we talk about the individual, we're going to be talking about a person in the midst of all the other people. So it isolates that, whatever the fig tree is referring to in the application, it isolates that. And so therefore... Um, it, it, it makes a difference. Now, as I said, when, we, when I talked about that, that vineyard song of Isaiah, well, that would be something that the people Jesus talking, were talking, was talking to would have picked up. Because in there, there's no discussion of, of, of anything else but the grapes. It's the grapes that are sour. Now we're talking about a fig tree in the midst of the grapes. Notice that there's no discussion about the grapes at all. We don't know whether they were fruitful grapes or sour grapes. You know, they're, they're just grapes because the focus has been narrowed for us down onto this, uh, the, the, this one fig tree that is in the rest of that. So there's a fig tree in the vineyard and he, he of course being the landowner, came seeking fruit on it and found none. Now, We want to notice a couple of things about that. First of all, the he, the landowner, is Yahweh. We don't have to question that because that was made clear in that that, um, vineyard song of Isaiah's. Now, he came to the fruit tree. Now, the reasons you would have to come to that, it it denotes coming right up to it. And the reason that was necessary was because of the nature of a fig tree. I I told you, they they form a canopy. They've got those big, big flat leaves. Well, you can't see whether it's bearing fruit from a distance. You've got to get right up to it and kind of pull those leaves apart. So the point is, this is a close inspection. This is not a casual look. The landowner is coming to the fig tree, all that it represents, and closely inspecting it to see if it is bearing the kind of fruit. But the great significance here 
is that the landowner is looking for, he is seeking fruit. Now, here's the, here's the point, brothers and sisters. This is probably the crux of the whole parable. The, as the French say, the raison d'etre, the reason for being, the reason for the existence of that fig tree is to bear fruit. In other words, if a fig tree is not bearing fruit, the fig tree has no reason to be. And later on, when we start applying that fig tree to nations, groups, and individuals, that becomes a very poignant statement. That's what it means. That I'm looking for what that fig tree was designed to be, and it's not doing it. And we will see his solution in a little bit. That is going to be very severe. One last thing about this definition here. Um, he's, he, he's saying that he'll say that for three years, I, I haven't found it. So one of two things is wrong with this fruit tree. Either it is an old tree, either he's coming to it looking for fruit because for years it bore fruit for him. And now for the last three years, it hasn't. And so he has to make a decision because the tree is deteriorating. Otherwise it's a brand new tree. And the brand new tree, once we get to it, will explain why he would be frustrated to the point of cutting it down and would perhaps only give it three years. So it's one of those two. Either it is used to bearing fruit or it is a brand new fruit tree. Now, we're going to see the severity of the landowner. The landowner says, and he said to the vine dresser, look. For three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? So the landowner, after inspecting the fruit tree, has a conversation with the vine dresser, two people that are involved in this discussion. Now, the word for vine dresser in Greek can either be someone who works in a vineyard or a gardener. In this particular case, he's not only working in the vineyard, he sounds like he's the head of the vineyard. He's the foreman. He's the horticulturalist whose job it is to make sure that these plants bear fruit. Now, let me just pause a minute because this has been a source of controversy over the year, and I want to make sure we clear that up. There's a conversation that is going on between who? Who are the conversants here? Who are the ones who are involved in this conversation? So let's establish that by first establishing who they're not. First of all, this is not a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. I don't believe that God the Father and God the Son would ever have a conversation like this. Where the son says, hey, father, why don't you do this? And, 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 and let me give you another opinion than your own. They're one being. That would never happen. But the real problem here is that if you say that, okay, the landowner who represents severity is God the father. And the vine dresser who represents kindness is Jesus. Then you're delegating the God, of the, uh, the, the, God the father to being a God of wrath, a God of judgment, a God who is severe and is not kind or, or loving or compassionate himself. And that's just not true. In fact, Jesus has been making that point. And right here in uh, uh, chapter 11, he said, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, 
How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? In fact, we have established that one of the reasons that Jesus and the cosmic initiative has come was to destroy evil, to seek and save the life, and to introduce the Trinity and a loving Heavenly Father. He says this in the 12th verse, Fear not, little flock, for... I'm sorry, the 12th chapter. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So in other words, that doesn't work. And, And by the same token, it doesn't work that God the Son is all about mercy and grace and kindness and never has any severity in Him whatsoever. I mean, if you remember the parable we just looked at earlier about the two servants... One faithful servant who was waiting for his master and looking after his things. The other wicked servant. Do you remember what happens when the master gets home? Who is that master? It's Jesus. Okay? This is the son of man. And this is what he says. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. That's Jesus, all right? That is severe. That, that is not discussing about Jesus' kindness. And by the same token, Jesus is saying in the 13th chapter, we looked at it last week, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you also will perish, meaning you also will spend an eternity in hell. So in other words, it doesn't work. It doesn't work to say this is a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. It also doesn't work to say that this is a conversation between the Old Testament God, who's a God of wrath, and the New Testament God, who's a God of mercy. Now, people from the arch-heretic Marcion in the second chapter, all the way through local evangelical celebrity pastors like Andy Stanley, who says that you should unhitch the Old Testament, it's no value anymore... They have designated the Old Testament as a God of wrath and the New Testament as a God of grace as if they're two different gods. Guess what? God can't change. He's the same God now that he was for Abraham. And so therefore, it would be disastrous if God were to change. But again, that's not what Scripture teaches. Going back to the Old Testament, all through it, especially the Psalms, it talks about the loving kindness of God from Psalm 36. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. He's presented to us as a loving, compassionate, kind God. Where, quite often in the New Testament, he is revealed as a God of judgment and a God of wrath. Okay, We read earlier, I read in the moment of the word for you from Paul. Because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In the first chapter of that book, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, in other words, it's not a conversation between Old Testament God and New Testament God. So, what, who, who are the conversants here? Well, the best way to look at this is anthropomorphically, right? That's a big word. I love to throw those kind of words out at you. I think most of you know what it means is as if in a human terms. God is not human. This doesn't apply to him. He is spirit. But we can talk about things in an anthropomorphic sense. And so, therefore, what the best way to look at this is a conversation between the personified kindness of God 
and the personified severity of God. The two aspects of the complex God are having a conversation with each other. Now, again, that's anthropomorphic. It would never happen this way in the reality of God, but that helps us understand it a little bit, that there's this conversation that, the, as Psalm 85 says, the righteousness of God and the peace of God will kiss each other in and what's going on here. So we're about to hear from the, um, uh, from the, again, from the severity side, the landowner's frustration. And here it is. Look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Okay, very frustrated. Well, again, remember I told you there's two scenarios here. Either this fig tree once was a great fruit bearer, and over the last three years, it stopped bearing fruit, and he's just put out with it. He put out with it. You can see it's deteriorating. He say, "Let's just get rid of it." But more than likely, it's a new fruit tree. More than likely, he's looking for the first fruit from this tree, and and the reason for his frustration might be better understood if we understood the laws about planting fruit trees. Okay, most of us don't know this, but going back to Leviticus, this is what Leviticus says about planting trees that you're going to eat food from in the promised land. From the 19th chapter of Leviticus, when you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. So three years, you can't do anything. If there's fruit, it's just going to simply fall to the ground. In the fourth year, all of its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. So that means that for the first four years, there's nothing that the man can do. He can't eat any of the fruit from his fig tree. Not until the fifth year, and that's what Leviticus goes on and says, but in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit. So here's what's happened. After four years, in the fifth year, the man went to find fruit. There is none. The sixth year, there is none. The seventh year, there is none. Now we're in the eighth year that he's been taking care of this plant and yet to have fig number one. Okay, so he's done. He's frustrated. He's saying, I'm not going to wait any longer for this fig tree. There's not going to be a ninth year. Because it didn't bear fruit again this year. So that's the frustration of the landowner. Now we're going to see his severe solution. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? One of the commentators that I read every week, and you'll hear a lot about him while we go through the parables of Luke, is a man named Kenneth Bailey. And he taught in Lebanon and other places in the Middle East for over 30 years. And he's written a couple of books all on Luke's parables that, that, that give us the, 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 the worldview of a first century Palestinian peasant. It, it's the, the parables of Luke told through the eyes of the people who would be listening to what Jesus was saying. Now, a great insight into the culture of the day. I don't agree or actually listen to a lot of his conclusions, but tremendous insight. So he says this about that word, cut down. Now, in the West, when we talk about cutting something down, what do we think of? Well, trunk, right? 
go after the trunk. And we saw, of course, we get our chainsaw and go right through the trunk. That would be an axe. The axe is going to go to the trunk, and that's going to fell the the trunk, and it's going to leave the the, the roots uh, and the stump in the ground. Not so in the Middle East. To cut a tree down to them meant to dig it up. It, It meant total extraction. Nothing left of that tree whatsoever. And a, and, and a good hint of this, if you remember back to the beginning of Luke when John the Baptist and all the Sadducees and Pharisees are coming out to get baptized and he says, you brood of vipers who warned you to avoid the wrath to come. And he said, already the axe is at the root of the tree, not at the trunk of the tree. The axe is at the root of the tree because that's the way they dig it out. So what's the significance of that? What we're talking about is total removal, annihilation, total extraction, nothing left. We're not going to leave the roots or a stump that might sprout again. No, when you cut this down, you remove it altogether. And he says, why should it use up the ground? Why should it exhaust the soil? Why should it pull any more nutrients? But more than just pulling nutrients from the soil, what he is saying is why should it waste space? I have X amount of space in my vineyard and it is occupying part of that space. And if it is not going to bear fruit for me, remove it because it has no reason for being at all. It's wasting the space upon which it is planted. So remove it. Brothers and sisters, that's severity. Okay, That's the severity of God being presented for us. But now we're going to hear from the vine dresser and we're going to see the kindness of God. Look in the 8th verse. And he answered him, Sir, let it, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and... I put manure on it, and I put on manure. Now, the, 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 the vine dresser is a good horticulturist because what he is saying is, is, is let's see if we can fix this. We have so much time, so many years invested in this fruit tree, in this fig tree. Why don't we try to fix it rather than just annihilating it and getting rid of it. Just give me one more year. Give me a little bit of time. And here's what I'll do. I will aerate the soil. I'll dig around it. And those of you who know gardening know that that's positive, to, especially when you get this packed dirt. It allows for those tender roots to grow in a, in a turned over soil. It also allows oxygen to interact with the soil, which makes it far easier for those roots to absorb the moisture in the soil and, of course, absorb the nutrients that are in the soil as well. So therefore, aerating the soil, even today, is a good thing to help that tree produce fruit, which is, of course, what he wants. But the other thing that he says is to spread manure on it. Now, if you're following along with the New American Standard or the NIV, they've been a little bit more polite. They've said, fertilize it. But the word is manure, and and let me, please forgive me for being a little graphic. The word is the excrement of an animal, okay? And he says, spread that on it. Now, again, those of you who know 
gardening know that that's excellent fertilizer. It's, it's got a lot of nitrogen in it that the plant needs. It has trace elements and it, it has nutrition that will give it the energy it needs to pop those blooms so that the bloom can turn into fruit. So it's, it's giving it the, the, the nourishment that it needs. But there, there's, there's some people who think that Jesus is using this as a pun here. Um, because after all, one of the one of the applications of the fruit tree or the fig tree is going to be the religious leaders of of Israel, and basically he's saying spread manure on them. Uh, maybe then they'll bear fruit. Now, keeping in mind that these are the guys that Jesus has called the blind guides of the blind, he's called them filthy dishes, he's called them fools, and he's also called them open graves. So he's, he, he, he doesn't mind telling it like it is. Uh, so I, I can certainly see him using this. But that's the practical reason of what he's doing. There's a figurative reason here that he's doing because, as I said, this is the figurative representation of the kindness, of mercy, of grace, of giving a second chance um, now, again, going back to Isaiah, when we read that, that song, there, was, there is no kindness there. In fact, to reread the fifth and sixth verses, God speaking about his vineyard, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break it down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed or briars and thorns shall grow in it. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. That's the language of severity. There's no kindness in that language. Now, we don't know that a period of kindness has already existed before that. And we know in Isaiah's world, yes, I mean, centuries of kindness had gone before that. But nonetheless, there's nothing in that song that Jesus is using as the background to this parable except severity. So that just makes this kindness sort of leap off the page at us. Because when he says, give me a year, don't cut it out now. Let's, let's, let's add something to it. Let's aerate the soil. You have so many years invested in these Jews, if you want to look at it from the nation of Israel. Look at the centuries you've invested in them. Let's see if we can fix them. Let's see if they'll listen to the words of the Redeemer first before we cut it out. And that, of course, is the language of second chances. How many of you are here because you've had a second chance? How many are here like me who had second and third and fourth and fifth? And say, I mean, you can't count the number of chances that the Lord gave us before he brought us to salvation. And that's what this language is talking about. It's the language of mercy. It's the language of grace. And so the, the, the vine dresser says that if there, is, if, if there is any way that we can give this another year, let's do it. But brothers and sisters, there's a hugely important principle here, one that so many people in the evangelical church simply just don't get right now. Notice what he says in the last verse. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. If we add all this to it, if we aerate the soil and we fertilize it and it bears fruit, then (laughs) praise God. That's great news. Uh, Okay. Uh, So much the better is what that phrase means. Okay. Not only do you have your fruit tree, but you still have some fruit and you don't have to start all over again. That is good news. But if it doesn't, 
cut it out. You see, there's a principle here. And we're looking at both the severity and the kindness of God. And there's so many people that feel that because God is kind now, he will be kind forever. Because they're in a period of God's kindness that the kindness in some way cancels out the severity. And so many people look at the New Testament that way. They think that because there is mercy and there is grace and that we are saved by grace and by faith and this not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast because we are in this time of God's kindness that that kindness will last forever. But the principle here, brothers and sisters, is that kindness doesn't cancel the severity of God. It postpones it. Let me repeat that. The kindness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God doesn't cancel out his holiness and his severity and his judgment. It simply postpones it. It simply gives you another chance. It simply says you have some time to settle with your creditor before you get to the judge. For goodness sakes, take advantage of the kindness of God. Because if you don't, if you don't respond, if you don't repent, you all likewise will perish. Basically, we have three, three uh, principles here that we want to make sure that we see. And as I said, the way that you look at a parable is to, first of all, establish the principles. Because the principles are applicable on a variety of different levels. So we want to establish the principle. Principle number one from this parable is that God expects fruit from everyone. That's the expectation. God is a landowner. This is his vineyard. And whether, whatever we're talking about as far as the fruit tree is concerned, it can be, have many different applications. But the principle is this. God expects fruit. What is fruit? <laughs> fruit is not success. Fruit is not being a good person. Fruit is a really big subject, and it's even beyond what Paul says in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. But we can boil it down to what fruit is. Fruit is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love and give yourselves as servants to those God loves. Fruit is to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, because he is the redeemer. He is the one that came so that you might live. And unless you believe and trust in him and surrender your life to him, you cannot bear fruit. And so therefore, what reason do you have to exist? So therefore, God wants fruit from his fig tree. And the second thing is that God is a complex God. God is not a simple, one-sided, flat, easy-to-explain God. God is a God who is at the same time a God of severity and a God of kindness. Infinite in his kindness and love and compassion and infinite in his holiness and perfection and severity. He's complex. If you have trouble getting your mind around that, don't worry about it. We can't. We're not supposed to. He's supposed to be more complex than we are. He's supposed to be beyond our comprehension because he's God and he's infinite and we're finite. Accept the revelation that you are given in scripture about who God is. He is a complex God. He is both severe and kind. Don't separate the two. Don't make him one or the other. 
Third principle is that there's a timeline here. There's a time limit. There's a time, and, and I don't want, and I say this often, I don't want you to think that there's a limit to God's patience. He's not. There's no limit to his patience. There's a limit to his providential decision about how long he will allow a nation to go if they're not bearing fruit, how long he will allow teachers and, and pastors to go if they're not bearing fruit, how long he would allow a church to go, how long he would allow an individual to go without bearing fruit. There is a line in the sand. There's a providential line that God has established. And you cross that line, we know when you reach the judge. Some people will reach that sooner than later. Some people reach that even when they're walking around on this earth and think they're still alive, when spiritually they're already dead. These are heavy words, brothers and sisters. And the importance of that last one is that, yes, there's a timeline. And just because you happen to be in the midst of God's kindness does not mean it cancels out his severity. Because there will be a time of severity. Jesus Christ came to hang on a cross to receive your time of severity if you put your trust and faith and belief and surrender to him. Otherwise, you will face that severity on your own. That is the clear, pure teaching of Scripture. With those three principles in mind, there are a multitude of applications. I don't have time to go into all of them, and I won't. But obviously, there is a clear application at this particular time. Jesus is talking about the nation of Israel. He's talking about those people that God has set aside and given so much to and spent so much time aerating their soil and and fertilizing them and calling them back to him and teaching them. Paul puts it this way in Romans 9. They are the Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. God has given so much to the nation of Israel. But Jesus came to tell them that that time of kindness is coming to its providential line. Therefore, I tell you, he said, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. It's not like this is not stated clearly. So the fig tree represents the nation of Israel in one application. Another application, the fig tree represents the false teachers of his day, false teachers of every day, the scribes and the Pharisees, those who were um, uh, of teaching and leading people astray. Jesus said of these men, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks On another occasion, he said, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Back when we were reading Romans 11, and he talks about the severity of God being shown to those who are cut off. These are the ones he's talking about. Those who not only were cut off, they climbed out on the limb and cut it off behind them. Because their own traditions were more important than the commandments of God. And so, therefore, there was a a falling out there. Now, both of those, we can look at in a broader sense. 
Because just like the nation of Israel, there would come to a time that God is not going to put up with the fig tree anymore. We can look at history and we can see that the same has been true with other nations, not just the nation of Israel. We saw it happen with Germany, a major revival during the Reformation with Martin Luther and spread throughout the country and now Germany is almost completely apostate. We saw it happen in Switzerland with John Calvin and a tremendous revival throughout the entire uh, uh, land and now it's almost apostate if not completely. I'm told that one of the most atheistic countries on the face of the planet, even in the Middle East, is Scotland, the home of John Knox and Presbyterianism. And God takes out a fruit tree, takes it out completely. England, the home of the Puritans, also completely apostates. And that turns my attention to our country. I asked you if you read that, that notice I send out on Saturday of preparing your hearts for worship. One of the things I ask you to do is pray for the church. Not just this church, but pray for the church. Because as I have said so many times, as goes the church, so goes the country. And if that is true, what I see in the church today, we are headed for dark, dark times. When God removes that tree, when he takes it out, he takes it out completely, and there's nothing left, pray for the church in this country that we will have a revival and that people in the pulpits and people in the pews will turn their hearts back to God, accept his word as truth, and quit monkeying around with it and making it say something that it doesn't say. Same thing is true about the religious leaders because we can look at that and we can say the same thing about the church in any day. When the church begins to go apostate, when the church begins to not pay attention to what it says in Scripture, when the church begins to side with the culture and say that I'm going to accept it because it is culturally acceptable, and even though I know that the Bible explicitly denies it and abhors it, I'm going to accept it so that I will remain relevant to the culture. When that happens... God cuts the tree down. He removes the lampstand. The church becomes a social club. Pray, my brothers and sisters, that that doesn't happen. But I think one of the most powerful applications to this is to the individuals. Jesus, Jesus brought us a religion. If you look at other religions, he brought us a religion that is intensely personal. He didn't go for the big crowds, although crowds followed him. For the most part, the crowds were curiosity seekers and excitement seekers. They they weren't true followers. He taught 11 men to teach other men. And that's the way he began. He knew that Christianity was a one-on-one basis. I tell you about Jesus. You tell someone else about Jesus. And it's continued for 2,000 years and it will continue until Jesus comes back. So therefore, I think one of the most poignant examples of what this means, one of the most poignant applications is that the fig tree represents the individual. And as we learn, God wants fruit from his fig tree. Every last one of us. That means a total change, brothers and sisters. That means that it's not the fruit of the culture. It's not just being a good person. It is the fruit that God wants. Jesus told a man named Nicodemus, you must be born again. 
Because if you're not born again, you will by no means see the kingdom of God. People don't recognize that in that third chapter of John, God is resented to us as a God of kindness and severity. The God of John 3.16. What a lovely verse. And we all know it and we all love it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is the most glorious kindness of God. That is mercy. That he would send his son into this darkened world to take my sin upon him. And to pay for them forever and then wrap me in his righteousness. That is kindness beyond the comprehension of the human mind. But tragically what most people don't recognize is that is also a statement of the severity of God. They just don't think it through. Because what Jesus said is those who believe in him shall not perish. Those who do not believe in him will. It is a statement, a clear statement of his severity. There is one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way except through Jesus. You accept him as your Savior. You give him your life. You surrender. Then you will spend an eternity with him. You will not perish. You reject him and you will. Unless you repent. You will all likewise perish. John puts it this way, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's not hellfire and brimstone, brothers and sisters. That's just telling you who God is. God is a God of kindness and love and mercy and grace. God is a God of holiness and righteousness and severity. So for goodness sakes, in the time of kindness, settle with your accuser. Before you get to the judge. Because when you get there, it's all severity from there. Just like Isaiah's song. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to drop to your knees. Accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And thereby not have to experience the wrath that comes. Now, the major application of this, and I'm not going to go too long in this. The major application that I have given so far is to unbelievers, to apostate churches, to apostate countries. But as usual, I'll look around at this congregation. I know most of you, and I see a whole bunch of people who know the Lord and love the Lord. So what does this say to you? What, if anything, do you have to take home with you? I don't have to go very deep into this. Because principle number one, I think, says it all. Principle number one says, God expects fruit of his fig tree. And you are a fig tree planted in the vineyard of God. What on earth are you doing sitting idly by waiting for Jesus to come home? You were made for a purpose. What is the chief end of man? The Westminster Confession asks, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You were placed here to bear fruit. If you're not bearing fruit, then why are you wasting the ground? You say, what, does that mean I'm going to be dug up? No, you're not going to be dug up. 
Not if you have already been saved. Not if you've given your life to Jesus. Not if you are one of His. And I'll tell you the reason you will never be dug up. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus. Because you are a gift from the Father to His Son. In honor of the cross work that He did on your behalf. But I'll leave you with this. You're really going to think I'm a hellfire and brimstone preacher. But I will leave you with this. If you think you're a Christian, because you walk down the aisle and you accepted Jesus, and yet there is no fruit in your life, look down at your roots and see if there's an X there. Because those who are born again bear fruit for the kingdom. You think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us such clear teaching. We we don't have to wonder what this means. You have so, I mean, all through the 12th and now the 13th chapter, you have hammered us with what this means. Lord, first of all, I pray for those who don't know you, who because you have held them here are still here, still listening, whether here in the sanctuary or online, maybe 10 years from now, if, they, if we're given that, time, that amount of time. Lord, I know that you hold people there because you want them to hear the message. If they're still here, then Lord, I pray that you would, you would work in their hearts, change it, that the, you would regenerate those hearts and impress upon them the need for fruit. For the rest of us, dear Lord, who are here, then call you Lord. May you give us the blessing of good fruit, fruit well, well developed and, and well grown and well distributed. May that be the nature of this body of Christ, that we are fruitful and that we spread that fruit around as much as you uh, can call us to do. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.